Where is everyone? Welcome. The preacher, as we looked last week at our first uh, opening portion of Ecclesiastes there in chapter 1, as we were looking at it, the preacher has made a conclusion as he speaks that there is no gain to be made under the sun. Again, there is no profit, which is the question and concern of verse 3 as he sets out to handle this kind of life's direction. What is, there, what is the meaning in life? Why are you working so hard? What is your toil all for? I'm looking at folks that have just come in from a week worth of toil. So he's asking you this morning from the text, what was your gain? Well, when, you, when you look back, okay, so we were here on Lord's Day last Sunday. Here we gather on Lord's Day again. And so in between there, Lord's Day to Lord's Day, we have toil that we filled our schedule with. We toiled. And we did so with some sense of purpose. Now, again, what he's, what he's addressing is what is that purpose? You know, for you to look back on your period from Lord's Day to Lord's Day and to be able to discern some sense of affirmation, some sense of purpose. Now, the young audience here that he is addressing are those who are seeking gain. And the term there is applied most uh, directly to a profit or gain of finance. So they're in the marketplace looking to gain money. They're doing what they do for money. And so he's broadening the scope of gain, and he's asking you again, what is the gain actually? What is it ultimately? In a moment, or proportionately, sure, you got some money somewhere between Lord's Day and Lord's Day. Okay, sure, proportionate. But what is the actual gain? Ultimately. Right? This is what he's asking us. This is what he's addressing to the audience, or as he says in chapter 12, he is teaching his son this level of wisdom as he engages with the young. That is verse 3. What does man, what did you gain by all of your toil at which you did toil under the sun? Now, again, the phrase under the sun, as we move forward, you're going to see this phrase some... 29 times throughout the book. So as you, we engage with this term or this phrase under the sun, what you have to recall in your mind as he engages you with this terminology is it's a turn of phrase of sorts, meaning secular or without thought for God. That, that is the horizon that he's addressing. You're going, you live there, you live your life under the sun, and he's asking you in this secular worldview or this without God approach, what are you gaining ultimately in your life? That's what he's asking you. So again, as we hear it, then each one listening attentively are asking, is that me? And even for believers, we'd say certainly so, again, proportionately. And, and the growth by grace is to see that proportion drowned out and the desire for ultimate meaning continue to increase and expand. So we're constantly in this kind of persevering measure in our pilgrim's journey to reorient when things get out of balance and life gets more turbulent, we have that pressing question. 
what am I doing? What am I doing with my investment? What am I doing with my time? What am I doing chasing this, chasing that? How am I a good steward of the relationships that I experience in time? What am I doing or gaining for my toil? In verse uh, 11 at the end, as we looked last week, he ends this opening address or this challenge to you to consider your life and its gains. He ends his opening address by challenging the thought of personal legacy. And this is where we ended last week, and that is in verse 11. By the way, he says, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Now, what he's getting at is you won't be remembered. You won't be. You know, a generation, perhaps by your own offspring, your own young ones, they'll go on and they'll remember Grandpa Adam, if I'm a grandpa someday, or something to that effect. You know, and then and, 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 and perhaps you could see, even right now, how, how often do you meditate even upon your own great-great-great-grandparents? I don't know, did, did you think of them this morning? This, this idea that, again, a generation comes and a generation goes, and ultimately, if that is your meaning, is being remembered, you won't be. So again, does legacy matter? Sure. Right? There's no one in here, I don't think, w- would argue that legacy doesn't. That, 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 that acting wisely in time and investing in the providential relationships that God has given you at this moment matters, doesn't it? It matters that we're with our children. It matters that we're shaping and catechizing. It matters that we invest in one another in this local church. It matters in our friendships beyond the borders of this local church. It matters in our families and extended families. That's meaningful to invest. It's a blessing that the Lord has given. It's not vanity vanities. No one matters besides me and even me. I don't even matter. Things do matter, but the call is in proportion to their offering, not to then take what is a good gift in proportion and make it an ultimate, that I must live every moment so as to not be forgotten ever, and the way that I structure my daily existence is to guarantee that I'm not forgotten, and therefore I live every waking moment considering the long view of how here upon the earth I will never be forgotten. He says, you will be. There will be no remembrance. The proportion that you're placing upon it, the burden that you are placing upon being remembered, being marked out in the walls of human history, even within those in your family, it will never match the effort that you're putting into it. The return will not be there. By the way, neither will you. It's disproportionate. Life in some of verses 1 through 11 
it brings what we've kind of titled here for each one of our texts that we consider throughout the book. It's kind of a subtitle to the book, Unfulfilled Expectations. As we saying, eventually, your yellow brick road, made in time, that you're constructing and following, that is proportionate and meaningful in time, but you've taken a standard road, let's say, and made it a yellow brick one, that it's going to end in meaning. It's not going to be frustrated by futility. I know it. I'm going to receive the validation I need from this person. I'm going to receive the validation that I need from this job. I'm going to be justified by my performance as a... I, I know I am. That's why I work so hard and I toil so intensely at it. I know I'm going to get it. He says to you, your yellow brick road will collapse in time. And so will you. If that is where you're seeking to derive validation from. Self-justifying efforts. You'll kind of pull back the curtain at the end of your yellow brick road, kind of surely you know what movie it is. And you'll find yet another fraudulent experience. No matter what you think that goal is, it will never deliver the burden you're placing upon it. It is proportionate and meant to be so. It is frustrated by futility because it's a part of the earth. It can never bring ultimate meaning, ultimate validation, ultimate justification. Life is full, says the preacher, of unfulfilled expectations. Here, however, he begins his first inquiry. What will be, if you were to look at your Bible, you'll see kind of the titles. If you look at chapter 2, you see yet another uh, pursuit of the preacher. Chapter 2 at the top, we'll see his next quest will be self-indulgence. At least that's how the ESV labels the next section there. They title it self-indulgence. If you look at another journey by verse 12, you'll see there's another break there in the emphasis of his journey, and that is the vanity of living wisely. So what he's doing is he's about to, so he set you up in, in, in the very first poetic portion of the first chapter to gain your attention on life in an umbrella sense. Everything underneath it is futile. It's absolutely a waste of time. Now let me show you quest for quest, tick for tack, of what maybe you are banking on delivering an ultimate blessing, delivering an ultimate meaning. And I'll meet you on that ground in that theater, and I will expose to you how it will not end well. And this is a series of quests that he's going to do throughout the book. The first one this morning that begins where, we again, he's emphasizing to us this mission will collapse. It will end in a fraudulent manner. It cannot produce what you think it is promising to do. It cannot. And here he begins in verse 13 to explain his first quest where we are this morning, or verse 12. If you look there with me, verse 12 and 13, at the preacher's first quest, now that we've gotten past the introductory thought of really you don't matter as much as you think. You won't be remembered. He begins with quest number one, having the audience now listening, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. 
And this is what I did, he says, and I applied my heart, or as we heard earlier uh, through Dan Volker's text, I applied my mind. So again, the terminology here with heart is simply mind, will, emotion, the center of his being. All that he is, is the uh, semantic range of the term. And I applied who I am, all that I have, my capacity, heart, will, emotion, mind. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by means of wisdom all that is done under heaven. Now here we must recognize the intensity of the search. Verse 13, you see, it is anything but trite. It is a sophisticated attempt to get at the meaning of his existence. How do you see that in verse 13? I applied all that I am to seek and to search out by wisdom. So here he is employing all of his capacity, mental, emotional, intellectual, everything that he has is in pursuit of meaning. I'm telling you, audience, this is what I did. I didn't cut corners. I didn't just receive someone else's analysis. I didn't fail to consult with the wise sages of our time or to go to the library, so to speak. I didn't fail to do so. So right up front, before he takes us quest for quest, he's telling you, this is where I began. I spared no effort in learning, in gaining what it means to be human, what it means to live in existence under heaven. I spared no effort. I gave all that I have to find the meaning, to have some sense of purpose, to have some sense of identity as a human being. I did it all. I spent every bit of energy. This is something that I want to note to us, that this is an important to the task, to discovering a meaningful existence. This oftentimes becomes a criticism of the church. Now, again, I think many of us often, it's healthy to consider criticisms of the church, but it's also healthy to roll our eyes at many of them. Because criticisms you, oft, you realize are often lodged from a particular view It's not that the objective individual looks upon the church and all of its ills and they can assign to the church what's wrong with the church because they have nothing against the church purely on objective terms. They're just pointing out your faults. That's not really what's happening. So we need to think wisely of the criticism of the church. But certainly we would all admit that a broad criticism of the church is that that it offers overly simplistic analysis and overly simplistic thought of what it means to answer the harder questions in life. If you do a little uh, internet search and you just kind of throw out some phrases that piece together something in an engine that says something about like young leaving in church, something about that fact, and you start searching out little like kind of polls or exit interviews with people who have left the church or they go to a college campus and they interview a bunch of kids and they're like, hey, why'd you leave the church? Or what, do you go to a church? Are you affiliated or non-affiliated? What do you believe about God? What do you think of the church as far as an organized religion? What, what, what say you? And often what comes back in the criticisms is the fact that I sought for some sense of coherent meaning and the church failed to provide one. It was overly simplistic. 
with the challenges that I face. What we want to do is encourage, certainly, encourage our young children, parents in here, encouraging our children to think and to ask. They are wondering. And for the preacher, oversimplified responses don't work. You see, but the, the quest for searching and seeking with all your mind and heart of what people are always doing, searching and seeking and thinking and meditating on the meaning, seeking an actual coherent provided answer from the text of Holy Scripture is what we ought be able to provide. We must provide it to our little ones. We must be a church that thinks, thinks biblically, thinks through difficulty, so says the preacher, oversimplification won't work. We must seek and search. In other words, don't be afraid to ask questions. Oftentimes in those analysis groups of people that have left the church, there was some sense in which they gathered, that the church was nervous about receiving questions. We live in a complex age, full of moving parts. Analysis is that it's hard to immediately, dogmatically just say, this is the end of the matter. Boom. It's a bit more complex and moving than that. So what do we do to gain wisdom to be able to speak to that? We are woefully mistaken if we think that our own children won't rise up and say, hey, Dad, what about... Oh, they will. They will. So see, searching out and seeking wisdom that we would encourage in our young ones assumes that mom and dad are searching out and seeking by wisdom the biblical answer to all the complexities of life. How are we doing? What each one of us, how are we doing in the thoughtful analysis of moving parts of culture now? Are we just hoping the tough questions never come home? Are we giving our mind and our heart, like on Lord's Day, to search and to seek, to think and to meditate, to be able to provide, not only for ourselves, but for those who might ask? It does take searching, working. And I would just make one more note before moving on, on the methodology of searching and seeking, laboring intensively to gain by wisdom what it means to be God's people, and that is to never shy away from asking even your own questions. We need not fear. God is sufficient to answer all of our longings, to satisfy our inquiries. We must not live in fear that the Scripture might not provide. God might not have thought of. God might not be adequate. Search and seek by faith confidently that God has given us His Word that is sufficient to handle all of our questions. And be prepared for our young ones as they search and seek through mom and dad for meaning to complex issues, even at five and six, seven and eight. So it is the preacher warns, oversimplified responses 
won't work. So I gave all that I am to search and to seek by wisdom what it means to live my life under the sun. Notice how his quest, however, as he gave of himself in this energy to search and to seek, notice what he turned up, having now overturned every stone in his path. Because notice he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom how much of what is done under the sun, but all that is done under the sun. That is, I left no rock unturned. However, he concludes in verse Uh, in the second portion of the verse in his search, and that is, it is this. After, again, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. This is the conclusion to his quest. It's an exhausting and unsatisfying work to live. Later on, he will tell us, of the baby who is still born. This is his language. Uh, by the time we get to chapter 6, that, that baby was essentially blessed because the best days are birth and death. Everything else is under the sun and it is a toil to even exist. It is a burden. At least that baby didn't have to be born and see what the earth is like. It's meaningless. Birth and death are your two high points. This is his attitude in verse or chapter 6, in the early portions of which we'll get to someday. But it is, he says, I am trying, again in verse 12 and 13, I am trying to answer the big questions of life. Here are you this morning, perhaps on an inquiry of your own, or at least what we would call now an emotional roller coaster. Sometimes high, sometimes low. So too is the preacher. He is asking questions regarding happiness. We'll see it in the book. Questions of strivings. What's the point? Questions of toiling. What's the return? Issues of tragedy that he will witness. He'll see oppressed people groups. And he'll speak to it. What's the point? Why is this happening? He'll continue to push even against struggles and feelings of emptiness. Have you ever been there? Preacher says, so have I. And we'll see that in all of his quests. I struggle and I think I give my heart and my mind to search and to seek the meaning of meaninglessness. And in the end, let me tell you, young people, says the preacher, it is an evil burden that we bear being alive. That's what it is. It's an evil burden. It's vexing to even live. This is an important, I don't know how your English translation is taking the term here as far as the ESV, obviously, that I'm using this morning translates the term unhappy. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. We're just busy little ants moving around with no real meaning or purpose. Someone's going to step right on our anthill in any moment now. There's no point to working so hard. There's no point to moving your blocks. There's no point to building your home. It's all going to get stomped on. And by the way, nobody will even remember you. Trust me, I've thought about it. I've searched. I've sought. And it's meaningless. The 
Again, the term being unhappy here perhaps doesn't gather the darkness of his emotional state. A term is maybe better, but oftentimes can be mishandled, perhaps, so it's translated unhappy. Yet, let me cite for you one author makes the note that I think is more important for us to remember here in the translation. The preacher describes his quest in terms of a moral category rather than an emotional state. Right? So if we read the term unhappy, it's like, oh, you know, he's kind of a little bit gray or maybe he's sad. You know, he has a frown on his face. It's, it, it's more, it's more uh, kind of filled out with an emotional response to life, like he's sobbing on his porch now that he figured out uh, that, that life is a butt of vapor. Rather, what he's assigning to all of us that would live our lives under the sun is that it's evil. It's morally evil to be busy like this in our lives, to be filled with so much toil, to have so many vexing questions about the complexities of living. It's morally evil, is what I'm telling you, is a simplistic view of life. The problem, he goes on to say, the author, the problem is not simply that life makes us feel unhappy so often, but that life is evil in itself. It is not just an unfortunate business that God has given us to live upon this broken planet, but it is a bad business. End quote. So he says in verse 13, I left no, t- no stone unturned. Listen to me. I applied my heart to seek and to search by means of wisdom. All that is done under the sun, not a few categories, not a few things, not simple things, but all things under heaven. That is, from the view of a secular, godless standpoint. I've analyzed it. I've fought on it. I've meditated on it. I've sought its meaning. And let me suggest to you that in this view of living, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now, the question we might press as audience And hearing the sermon of the preacher, we might ask the question as to why. Why is your analysis ending in this life lived under the sun as morally evil? It's it's bad business that we're all born and having to live here. It's a bad business that we get up and go to work every day. It's a bad business that we overextend. It's a bad business that, that the emotions lay hold of us and vex us for so long. Living is bad business. We ask, why? Why all this deathbed language? What's really got this guy so wrapped around the axle? Why? Why, why? why would you assign it such a depressing and dark, almost graveyard experience? Verse 14 comes to further his answer. What he's done in his search by wisdom so far in the meaning of life lived under the sun In verse 14, he says, I have seen everything that is done, right? That's the fullness of the search. Verse 13 is, I'm setting out to examine it all. In verse 14, he says, I have seen it all. I've seen everything that is done. And behold. So if your text reads, and behold, right? He's preparing to make a declaration, kind of a universal declaration statement here that he's prepared to put forward and what he's going to do is he's going to defend it for the rest of the book he's saying i sought 
everything. I left no stone unturned. He's trying to get you by the collar because you're saying, no, he doesn't know me. He doesn't know what I'm into. He hasn't seen the person that I know. He doesn't have the money. I, no, I know the career. No, I have the degree. No, he doesn't get, he's saying, stop. I've looked at it all. Hear me out on this. There's no storm left unturned, including your own. And it's all bad. So I'm going to make a declaration here to convince you, and I will defend it for journey for journey throughout the next few chapters. And that is the strong declaration in the text. You see it there. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Again, I've looked at it all. I've seen it all. And I'm telling you that all is vanity and it is a striving after the wind. In other words, the declaration of the preacher upon his searching and seeking is that life under the sun. Remember, under the sun being a turn of phrase for secular or, or that which is simply pursued in the physical on the horizontal level. Life under the sun is meaningless. It makes no sense. And then he goes on to say that phrase that is pretty uh, well known. It is a striving after the wind. Maybe we hear that in wisdom sayings and other places and songs and imageries that it's a striving after the wind. So it is that he says in the striving after the wind, the terminology is actually to shape or control or even to shepherd the wind. Now, go with, go with the preacher here just for a moment and consider yourself there on, uh, you know, in, in kind of a, a desert place. And you're there in this mindset, and there's no trees around to kind of knock down or absorb the wind, and you're on this flat plain, and the wind is blowing. Okay, it's come down off the mountain, and it's just shooting across the plains. And you're standing there getting blasted by the wind, and in your mind, it is like asking you to shape it or control it with your own hands. Shepherd the wind. Go ahead, go for it. Like, take what's about to knock you down, grab hold of it within your grasp, and go ahead and shape it, shepherd it, mold it, and turn it. Obviously, the picture prevails. You can't do that. It wouldn't work. It's an impossible task. You, it's an exercise, what we often say is an exercise in futility. Like digging this hole and then filling it. And then digging it and filling it. It's an exercise in futility. I'm going nowhere. There's no point. It's, it's an impossible task to find meaning. And he's saying, exactly, that's what your entire life is like every single alarm clock morning. It's like shaping the wind, shepherding it. It's an exercise in futility. Shut the alarm off, put your feet on the floor, stand up, get dressed, and head to work. Guess what? That's a waste of life, is what he's saying to you. It's meaningless. It's a bad business. There's two things I want to draw your attention to quickly before we move on beyond the idea of shepherding, shaping, and controlling the wind. That is simply life lived in the secular viewpoint that this here and now is all there is to life is meaningless. He, he, he attacks two things. Consider he attacks the pursuit itself, right? So the striving, Okay, so, so already he's saying it's vanity. It's like a striving after the wind or a controlling of the wind. The pursuit itself is mad. 
striving, just take the striving, what you're doing. It's a mad pursuit. You're wasting your life every day. And then further he presses that it is the possession, even of whatever it is you grasp. Do you realize, in the imagery of wind, it is nothing. Let's say you did control it for a moment. What do you possess in your hands? This is the turn of phrase. You possess, you shepherd, you control the wind. Open your hands. What's there? In other words, so you did it. You gained what you were in it for. You're there. You're on top. You got the promotion you wanted. You got the degree you wanted. You got the friends you wanted. You got the house you wanted. You got the car you wanted. You have the life you wanted. What do you have? You're like, you just said, I have the car, I have the friends, I have, right? He's saying, that's nothing. It, it, he's suggesting it's earthly. So that means it, it's tainted with futility. It's frustrated by futility. It won't deliver to you or return to you the blessing of the burden you're placing upon it. It will collapse. So you have it. Show me what it is. It's wind. It's breath. It's nothing. You'll see in time, that car will rust and fall apart. It will. Because it shares in the frustration of futility. That relationship, you'll find out that person will disappoint. Nothing in the earth can bear the burden of ultimacy. It simply is proportionate. And it is good as long as it is proportionate. But when that which is portionate is made ultimate, it will disintegrate and you will collapse. You'll step back without receiving those things by faith and living through them for the glory of God, and they will destroy you. They will frustrate, and they will disappear. This is what he is saying is meaningless. In other words, with the end of the first thought, even your accomplishments that are so satisfying in a moment... If we think that is all we needed, it will prove to be nothing in the end. Then he says, let me explain it to you just a little bit further, he says, with, you know, a good proverb. Something perhaps your grandpa would say. Someone would clarify for you. And it might seem like weird at first. I have no idea what you just said to me. You know, some of those phrases that are saged wisdom passed on through, you know, Uh, Who knows how they're preserved, because oftentimes they're weird and unknown. But he says something to you in a proverb now. And you might be at first complex. So he says what's striving after the wind, and then verse 15, he says, let me clarify for you. In other words, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now again, if I said that to my son at this point, their eyes, my boys, their eyes would cross, right? It'd just be like, that really brought it home, Dad, thanks for that moment. I simply say, some of the matter is what is crooked cannot be made straight, guys, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Some total of the matter. It might not land. 
So, so some, some, of those, some of those moments or those proverbial words of wisdom fall flat. So if we could, maybe it wouldn't have been, but let me unpack just briefly what he is getting at. Because he's trying to land this plane with a word that is powerful for reorienting your priority, reorienting your proportion to proportion, and your ultimate unto that which is solely ultimate. So he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. This is at the end of his analysis of every single thing in the earth. Simply as we look at life that is lived in time, some things in life will never change. We will always, here in the earth, be burdened by them. This is his assessment. I've looked at everything. Every relationship, every socioeconomic challenge. I've looked at every landowner and his burdens. I've looked at those who are the workers and need jobs. I've considered relationships and intimacy. I've considered wisdom, even itself. And I'm telling you, things that are right now bent or crooked cannot be made straight. There are some things That will always be with us as challenges that cannot be fixed. Again, he's challenging the person who says, no, they can be fixed. And I, in my own strength, living life under the sun, apart from God, will fix them. I will straighten that which is bent or crooked. And he's saying, No, you cannot. I've looked at everything. Further, he adds in his summary thought by proverbial wisdom of meaningless living on earth apart from God, and that is what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, life will never truly add up to the sum of making sense. Life as it is lived on the earth in time is a bank account that cannot be balanced. It cannot be. It is turbulent. It's not even set up, he says, to be balanced. Some things are crooked and they'll always be that way. Some things will never add up to common sense and be balanced in right order. It just won't. The earth is not going to satisfy you. No, I'm looking over somewhere where you must not have seen. No, that's not true. I've seen it. Even if it's not your particular, I've seen it in a nexus of ideas where its kernel is the same kernel I examined. Sure, it might be a different space and time, but it's essentially the same source. No, it's more nuanced. Because it's more nuanced, it has an ultimate return. No, I'm telling you, I've looked at maybe not that particular, but the web of ideas that it's strung to. And I'm telling you, no matter what the offshoot is that is particularized to you, it ultimately belongs to the same house. Futility. It's an account that cannot be balanced. Life lived under the sun apart from God by faith will never balance. It refuses to. He'll tie this later in a a way to the fall of Adam. 
In other words, sin gives us our experience that that which is crooked will never be made straight as the world turns. And, and that which seems to not make sense when we add it up isn't poor arithmetic, it's reality. It will never balance. We kind of say it a little bit more colloquial like this. I use this phrase all the time. It is what it is. Let me give you one small, stay with me on this. It's interesting. <clears throat> it's source, coming from American filmmaker Woody Allen. I, I don't know if you're familiar. Um, he's popular, but in weird ways. So let me just give you an insight uh, where this is reality, right? This was July. Uh, I want to make sure I got my date right. Yeah, it was interviewed July 22nd. Woody Allen, uh, American filmmaker, this was published July 22nd. American filmmaker Woody Allen says there is one major reason the protagonists he creates usually view life as meaningless. Because it is. Quote, I firmly believe, and I don't say this as a criticism, that life is meaningless. This, the Oscar award winning, so on and so forth, said to his press as he was speaking of his new movie that is ready to launch. Quote, I'm not alone in this thinking. There have been many great minds, far, far superior to my own, that have come to that same conclusion, both early in life and after years of living. Unless somebody came up with some proof or some example where it's not meaningless, I will continue to think that it is. I think that it is a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing ultimately. That's just the way I feel about it. I'm not saying a one, should adopt, a one should opt to kill oneself, but the truth of the matter is when you think of it, every hundred years, now remember verse 11, a generation comes and a generation goes, no, nobody. So he says, if you think of it, every hundred years, there is a big flush and everybody in the world is gone. Then there's a new group of people. Then that gets flushed. Then there is a new group of people. And this goes on interminably for no particular end. I don't want to upset you if that bothers you. There's no end and no rhyme and no reason to the earth. And the universe, as you know from the best physicists out there, the universe is coming apart, and eventually there will be nothing. I mean absolutely nothing. All the great works of Shakespeare, all the work of Beethoven, and Da Vinci, all of that will be gone. Now, not for a long time, but nonetheless gone. But much shorter than you think, really, because the sun is going to burn out much earlier than the rest of the universe vanishes. So you won't have to wait for the universe to vanish. It'll happen earlier than that, and there will be nothing. So all of this achievement that man has, 
all of these Shakespearean plays, these symphonies, and the height of human achievement, it will all be gone completely. There will be nothing. Absolutely nothing. No time, no space, nothing at all. Just zeros. So, what does it really even mean? Concluding his remarks, he says, while films do have current critical importance in the large, large scheme of things, only the big questions matter. And the answer to those big questions are very, very depressing. His final comment What I would recommend is the solution that I myself have come up with, and that is distraction. That's all you can do. You get up, you can be distracted. Distract yourself by your love life. Distract yourself by the baseball game. Distract yourself by the movies. Distract yourself with nonsense, like can I get my kid in this private school kind of nonsense. Like, will this girl go out with me Saturday night kind of nonsense. And can I think of an ending for a third act to my play kind of nonsense. Am I going out to get the promotion in my office? All of this kind of stuff, just distract yourself with. Because in the end, the universe burns out. So I think the living life any more than that is completely meaningless. This is what Koheleth, the preacher, is driving at. Everyone thinks this way. And he affirms Woody Allen's right. It's all nonsense. It's all meaningless. If it's simply living life in the horizontal. What you see crooked will always be crooked. What you see not balancing will never balance. If it's simply living life under the sun is what you're after. final sum total that balances is the gospel of Christ. Under the burden of toil, our Lord entered into time. Lived a life of perfect obedience. Overcame man's toil. In his own life, he then offered on the cross in substitution for men who live their life under the sun for sinners who have no meaning that then three days later rising from the grave he establishes 
a new creation. Where that which is crooked has been made straight. That which does not make sense in time finds its ultimate meaning. We then ask, how can I have that meaning? What does that historical event have to do with me? That I might live life for something more than a frustrated, futile existence under the sun? It's the proclamation known as the gospel, the good news, that looking to Christ, your faith finds in him its sole object. That faith looks to him who entered into time, endured man's toil, laid his life down sacrificially to have that life taken up, to ascend on high, to establish a new creation beyond this moment that lasts forever, where the account is balanced. Faith is a receiving of him and a resting in him for all that he alone is. It is the sinner repenting of life lived under the sun. Laying hold of he who overcame. Establishing a new creation. Otherwise, apart from him, Life is meaningless. Let's pray. Father, we ask that 